You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Grace of Giving, the grace of generosity is the terms of the new covenant all believers must embrace to live in financial freedom. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to this, our third session on the series of financial freedom. We get this evening to the very heart of the matter. We're going to be looking at the grace that God has given us to be able to give and really it's the only way that the New Testament says that we should give but let's just pray before we start looking at this subject. Heavenly Father we just thank you uh, for your willingness and the pleasure it gives you to uh, minister into our hearts your word, your truth so we can understand uh, not only things about you but get to know you in a far deeper and richer way and we pray as we study this now together as we read the scriptures you'll bless it to us in jesus name amen lord amen the grace of giving it seems to me that the holy spirit knew that we would have difficulty in parting with our money <laughs> somehow it would be a struggle to us so it seems he made something very plain to us so there would be little doubt we need the spirit of god to reveal truth to us and to open up the scriptures and we have to look a little bit carefully but his teaching is very clear so uh, in the second book of corinthians he takes two whole chapters to explain to the Christian as clearly as he possibly can, of course he uses Paul to do this, uh, the whole subject of our giving to God, how it's changed from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, into the New Covenant and the New Testament. So our study this evening will be taken mostly from these two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'm going to read a passage to you from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give you the context. He is speaking to, obviously, the church at Corinth. It's written to the Corinthian church. And what he is, he is explaining to them that they need to receive themselves the grace of God to be able to give. He says in it that he's comparing them to a church that obviously has the grace of God, the Macedonian Christians, and he's saying, I am looking at what they're giving and what they're doing, and I'm looking at you. And so I'm comparing the two, and it seems a bit stark, but he says, I'll know how much you love God by how much you give. And you go, oh, oh, it's getting a bit near the knuckle, that getting a bit close. Okay, but there we are. So that's the, the, the context of it. So I'll just read these. I won't read whole of the chapters to you it's a very uh, long reading but just the first nine verses and then we'll i'll preach off the back of this he says and now brothers we want you to know about the grace now as i read this you look for that word grace because this is the most important word in this chapter in these two chapters it's about the grace 
that God places within us to enable us to be generous. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. It says, out of their most severe trials, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So we're looking at this thing called the grace of giving. Four times the word grace comes there. Paul often does this. If he wants to underline something, he'll just continually repeat the word. Well, it's not Paul really, is it? it's the Holy Spirit who's writing all this stuff to us. It appears that the only acceptable giving to God in the New Testament and under the New Covenant is this giving by grace. Grace is a beautiful word, isn't it? It is something that God ministers into our lives to cause us to live in the way that Christ would have us to live. We would live otherwise out of our old nature, our fallen nature, and that's unacceptable to God totally. So we have to be careful we don't live out of our own nature because whatever life we live out of the own old nature is not acceptable. The only life that's acceptable is the life that is flowing through us, which is the grace of God, and we live in that way. In the New Testament, uh, we do not sort of give as a result of law or command that we see in the Old Testament. They gave because it was commanded of them. There's no question of the grace of giving in the Old Testament is you need to give. God stipulates this. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 7, one of the verses that we read here, he says, but just as you excel in everything, so he's really praising the Corinthian church up, they are excellent in so many ways. The grace of God is operating, he says, through you in many, many ways. It's operating in your faith. Obviously, he could see the grace of God in the area of faith evident in their church. He says, in your speech, in your knowledge, in your complete earnestness and in your love for us. It wasn't natural. He could see it was the grace of God that caused them to live in this way. Then he goes on to say, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I've always found that a bit of a challenge that they can, um, they can be complete in earnestness and in their love, but they're not generous. It stands, so it seems the different virtues of God stand in their own right. And it's as though when God comes into our lives, he has to transform many areas of our life, our speech, our faith, 
our generosity, it doesn't all come as one big thing. He works on different things. And when you think about it, when you came to Christ, there was perhaps quite a few things for him to work on. He doesn't do it all at once. You couldn't handle that. So he deals with this aspect, then another, then he moves on to another. And sometimes we end up judging people and thinking, how come you still do this? Often it could be because God isn't working yet in that area to transform that person so he operates by the grace of God. So the Corinthian church was well equipped. We know in spiritual gifts from reading other passages, oh, they were exercising the gifts all over the place and they were exercising the grace of God. But this area of the grace of generosity or the grace of giving, they didn't have this. When he looked at them, he thought they were mean. They would promise things, but not follow through on it. And as you read this later, you'll see that they've promised things, but they haven't followed through on it. So they need to excel in this grace of giving. Paul says, be sure you don't miss out on this tremendous, important grace, the grace of giving. As I've said, that grace is a key word. And in those nine verses, it appeared four times. The Bible then, when it comes to giving, it speaks of law and grace. In the Old Testament, we gave because it was the law. Now, people who love God in the Old Testament, they didn't do things because of the law. They did things because they loved God. It would be wrong to say all the Old Testament saints just did things by the law and there wasn't love in their hearts. But in the New Testament, we do things because we love the Lord. That's not true. We see the love of David. David didn't just tithe. David gave over and over and over in abundance. And many saints of God, many wonderful characters of the Old Testament, even though the law was there, they didn't need the law to do it. They wanted to do it. See, the law doesn't change. God doesn't change. The laws are still there because in the New Testament, we are assisted by the Spirit of God to keep God's laws, the laws that he requires us to keep. The law then in the Old Testament was something external to the believer. It was written externally on tablets of stone or, or, or written out whichever way it was and they could read it very carefully. It said, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. If you do this and don't do that, you'll be blessed. And so it, was, it wasn't helpful to them. It didn't lift a finger to make it easier for them to do it. It simply said, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. It was good and it was perfect and it's never changed. The law of God has never changed because God doesn't change. Now, some of the laws given in the Old Testament, they stopped at Christ. Christ fulfilled some of the laws, the sacrificial laws, the ceremonial laws, those sort of laws. There were laws that were in place to separate them out from other people. But the moral laws of God, he cannot change them. The Ten Commandments cannot be fiddled with. They are for all eternity. They will go into eternity. It is the very heart of God, the laws. So the law wasn't helpful. It didn't help people keep the laws. They simply knew what God required of them. But when we come to the Old Testament, we find this wonderful thing called grace that makes all the difference. 
grace isn't something that's external to men and women. It's something that enters into them. It's an internal thing. It works on the inside of us. It helps us to do what God requires of us, to keep the law. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not cover, thou shalt not do all of these things. To the natural fallen man, he does them if he wants to or doesn't want, he doesn't care. But to the person who has received Christ, he sees the law, he sees God for who he is, he knows without God's help he can't keep them, and so part of the new covenant is that Christ comes in and helps us. He uses the expression, doesn't he? He writes the laws on our hearts. You think, oh, I wonder what that means. It means that Christ, who perfectly kept the law, enters into your heart. So the law keeper is actually in there, motivating you to keep the law. For the Christian, we might struggle because we struggle with our old fallen nature, but there's part of you that really wants to keep the law because Christ dwells within. God living on the inside of us makes it all possible. God knew this. That's why he sent Jesus to die. And the minute we put faith in him, his spirit, the spirit of Christ, enters into us. And so the law then dwells within us. It's written on our hearts. It is written there then by the Holy Spirit. It isn't Christ that actually enters into us, is it? It's the Holy Spirit that enters into us. Some people can get a little bit confused about this now. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, and Scripture uses it in all those terms. So Christ doesn't live in you, but the Holy Spirit does, and he is the Spirit of Christ. And so he's living on the inside, and of course he is the power that is within us that makes it possible for us to keep every law of God. And because he lives in there, we want to keep it. Just as Jesus wanted to and could, we can and want to because he lives on the inside of us. There's that wonderful verse in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 and 33. It says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So the old covenant under the law will be finished with, he says, and I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's us. We are also termed the house of Israel, God's people, the continuation of God's people. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it will not be like a covenant I made with your forefathers, a covenant of law that he made through Moses, after a time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in your minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God always wanted to live amongst his people and what finer way does he do it by entering into us by the Spirit of Christ. He lives in the midst of us but he's longing for the day when he comes and lives physically, I believe, amongst us as people in the new world in the future world so he as jeremiah says what he will do he will come and put something of himself inside of us to keep the law when you receive then jesus as your personal savior 
the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, entered into your heart. The old nature is still there. He has come in, but what he wants to do now is a work of transformation. That's what Christianity is. We've been, set, we've been saved, as it were, set on a road, a road of, we could call it, discipleship, that we must start walking down. And as we're walking down this road, a work of transformation is taking place. That the old, the old person with all his old thoughts and attitude, he has to, or we have to reckon him dead, it says, so that this new life of Christ can live through us. As you let the life of Christ live in you, you receive new uh, values, new priorities in your life. We call them the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, patience, temperance, all of those things. They replace the old values of greed and selfishness and uh, I'm all right looking after number one. They they become replaced. This is what grace is. It is God imparting his life into us. God's grace to us. Grace has lots of meanings. I'm sorry about that. Uh, depending on the context of what you're looking at in the scripture, it can be interpreted as lots of ways. It simply can be interpreted as love, grace, graciousness. We know lots of uh, European words, that gracious and all of those things. It could be thanks. and there's, So there's lots of different meanings to the word, but this is what he means here. The visitation of God's power and life in us. The gift of God to change us. It says in John 1 and 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and faith came through Jesus Christ. They came to us. Both truth and grace came and entered into our hearts through Jesus Christ. Some, I say, when we first come to Christ, struggle with the old nature. It, it wants to assert itself. It wants to push itself forward. But this, this life of Christ that's come into us, it, it needs to be released to, to have its way. It takes time, doesn't it, for people to change. You might have been on the road a long time, but there might be some areas in your life where you know you've been a bit stubborn, and God has tried to change you, but you haven't let him. You've let this old nature dominate in your life. This is called the transformation of the human heart, which is vital. The purpose of church, the purpose of the body of Christ meeting together, the, the very purpose of church is to make us Christ-like. As we journey, we become more like him, Christ-like. Our heart, our new heart with its new value system is seeking to push itself forward in us that our very actions become the actions of Christ. God then has made his grace available to us, to help us live like him. This grace, this transformation, is only received through faith. 
You must never think, if I try a bit harder, God might give me a bit more grace. He doesn't do it like that. Grace is by faith. All of the grace that God has to make you like Jesus is yours. It's available to you, but you only partake of it through faith. You have to lay hold of it. People say, oh, I just, I just want this or I want that. And somehow they're expecting God to whack them with it or, or somehow, you know, put it on them or, or do something. That doesn't work. You do it by faith. If you see that God's love is available to you, you simply receive it by faith and choose to walk in it. Now, the old nature's going to fight with that and wrestle with that, especially at the start. But, of course, as every opportunity comes to your life to love, then you love, you choose to do it. You slow down in life and you think a little bit and you go, I will walk in the love of God because by faith I have received it. You received your salvation by faith. He doesn't make anyone have it. It's available for everyone, but only those who by faith receive it, receive salvation. And it's the same for everything else you're going to get from God. Oh, I wish God would use me to be prophetic. Well, start opening your mouth then and being prophetic because it's available to you. He says, I would, you all prophesy. So if you don't, don't blame God. Don't blame God for not giving it to you. Blame yourself for not having the faith to step out and start to exercise it. The challenge is with us because God isn't doing it to challenge us. It is an expression of his love to us. He's not going to force you to do anything. N nothing, because love won't tell him to do that. I'm sure he wants to. I'm sure he wants to push you around, and, but he can't do that because his love is so hands-off. It's all yours. Lay hold of it by faith and start to walk in. Oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do the other. Yes, you can. You can. By faith, you lay hold of what God has made available to you. This grace then, this ability to be transformed, we only receive it by faith. It's made available to us through Jesus Christ. It's made available because he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he released his life to us. It's as though he laid his life down and made it available to everyone who would come to him. His life is available to us. This is true for every area of your life. If you look at Jesus and think he's not mean, and you think you are mean, his grace is available to change you. If you're afraid, and you see that Jesus isn't afraid, his grace is available to you. Now, I know it's hard to struggle through stuff. I'm not saying it's easy. Well, I'm just putting the facts in front of you. It's before you to lay hold of, and you have to battle with it and battle with the internal person within you. You battle with the devil and his taunts of you. You battle with the world. You battle with, you battle with these things so the life of Christ can manifest in you. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Oh, in so many ways he did this. When he goes to the cross, he just becomes so poor, 
poor in every way. He becomes like takes upon himself the sickness of the world so you can become healthy. He takes upon himself separation from God so that you would never have to be separated from God. And he takes upon himself the curse of poverty that you wouldn't have to walk under the curse of poverty any longer. You could be financially free. Now, I have to keep putting this one in. It isn't about you becoming rich and wealthy. That's not what it's about. It's about you being free of thinking that you would be poor or things won't work out or you will be in lack or you will be without. That's what God wants to remove from you. The curse of poverty, the fear of poverty, the fear of never having enough. God says, I will go to the cross and I will become poor. So Jesus was so poor, he hadn't had a drink, he had nothing to eat, he had no clothes on his body. That's poverty. You understand? Uh, God's definition of poverty, or if you're not poor, if you're not poor, if you have clothes and food and water and shelter, you're fine. You're not poor. If those things are removed from you, that's what poverty is defined as. Jesus hung on the cross in poverty. He had nothing. He didn't have anywhere even to go when they took him down from the cross. It all had to be given. So he became poor so we, it says, could become rich. At the cross then, Jesus was simply like his father. Remember those early lessons where I said that God was a giver and of course God is Jesus and Jesus is a giver. He goes to the cross to give his life totally to us. It's yours, he says. Everything that I have is yours. You become a co-heir with Christ. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And I told you the other week, remember, we are the pinnacle of God's creation, made just a little lower than God himself. And so we have to see that, believe it, understand it, and walk according to it. He gave us everything in exchange for what he had. The righteousness of God became our righteousness. That's it. The perfect exchange. Grace is here manifested in an exchange. Jesus was rich, but he became poor out of his grace that we, through his grace, being poor, might become rich with his riches. Jesus exhausted the poverty curse of the broken law that in return, through grace, we might receive the wealth of the kingdom of God. What does this mean? We're born into a disobedient, cursed life. All of us. We never chose that. We were born in sin, as it were. That's the way we were. Jesus wanted to give us his pure, wonderful life. By going to the cross, he made that possible. We receive his pure, wonderful life, and he receives our cursed, poverty-stricken life. That's how it works. He gave us his life to be inside of us.
A couple of verses related to faith. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's like I said, your salvation was the grace of God, his grace. He had no reason to give it to you. He chose to just give it to you and you received it by faith. It says in Galatians six and, uh, 5 and 6, For in Christ neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but only faith working through love. Mm. Add something else to the equation now, Phil. Very crafty, okay? It's faith to receive the grace, but apparently this faith that you're talking about, it's through love. Whose love? Whose love does it work through? Well, it is because we love Jesus that we have faith. There isn't anyone who walks on this planet who doesn't acknowledge and love Jesus who's born again. You have to love him first. You have to recognise him, recognise who he is, and whatever that love means, you accept him. You love him. He is your saviour. You receive him as your saviour. You love him. People who don't want to acknowledge Christ cannot be saved. It isn't possible. They have to see him and love him and want him to be able to be saved. So we are saved through our love of him. Through this faith that we have now received, we've exercised our faith, we have a relationship with him, his grace is now available to us. So we recognise this lovely man, we exercise faith in him, and through this faith we receive grace. If we don't have grace, we live according to the old nature. Too many Christians live according to the old nature. And it could be because they're ignorant. They don't know about this. Maybe they're not bothering to educate themselves or, or put themselves in a place where they can understand how much God has done for them and the truth of this. If we are still lost in sin, what does that mean? Lost in sin. Lost means we don't know the way. We don't know where we're going. And people who do not know Jesus are lost. They're just wandering about in this world, lost. The destination is here, and they're just going round and round and round, lost, because they haven't fixed their heart or their love on Jesus, and the rest hasn't flown. They only live life that can be, sorry, the only life that we can, ple that we can please God is the life that is lived by his grace and not the life lived out of our old natures. Let me say that again. The only life that can please God is the life that is lived by his grace and not a life lived out of our old nature. If I'm going to bring pleasure to God, God has to enter into me and change me so I'm living according to his power within me his grace within me. 
If I live out of my old nature, none of it is acceptable to God. Only that which God produces in and through you is acceptable to him. Cain and Abel are a classic example, aren't they? Cain works hard, prepares an offering, brings it to the Lord, and the Lord says, I had nothing to do with that. That's unacceptable to me, therefore, Cain, you are unacceptable to me. Now, Abel, he does nothing. He has this lamb which God has, has birthed, which God has kept and fed and looked after, and he brings this thing that is of the grace of God and offers it back to God, and he says, that is acceptable to me, therefore, you are acceptable to me. The things we do in our life, they must flow from the life of grace within us. The only giving, back to giving now, not simply the grace of living, the only giving that is acceptable to God. You mean I can give to God unacceptably? Yes, you can. If your giving is not a result of the grace of God operating in your life, all the giving that you have given is unacceptable. Some people do things to be seen. Some people do things to gain points or favour with people. That isn't the grace of God operating in their lives. That's their old fallen nature trying to win position. God says, that's unacceptable to me. Whatever, the only thing acceptable to me is that which flows from grace. The only giving that is acceptable to God is that which flows out of his grace in our lives that has come through Jesus and through the cross by faith and is working by love. I think, why do people go to church? Because they love Jesus and they want to be more Christ-like. Any other reason? It just works. It just works. What are you doing? God doesn't see it, recognise it, accept it. It's not acceptable. The motivation of why we do things must flow from the right heart of grace that he has given into our lives. It must flow. How can this work practically? I want to give some money to you. I say, all right, I'm lying up for this one. Yes, please, okay. hope it's a big enough sum. I want to give some money. Why do I want to give it to you? Do I want to curry favour with you? Is it, is it coming out of this heart of grace? Or is it coming out of the flesh? You think, Phil, you are being a bit pernickety tonight. The fact is you've given money, that's what counts. No, it doesn't. To God, it's important where it came from. It's important what motivated the giving. It's important. That's why we pray about what we give and where we give and how much we give because God is only too ready to speak to us and explain it to us. Let me take you through these steps. Since I put my faith in Christ dying for me on the cross, his graces have entered into my heart through faith. So let's just assume I'm, I'm doing this stuff right. I have his graces in my life, the grace of love, grace of faith, different graces operating in my life. Christ is a giver, and I now live according to his grace within me. So he's in me, therefore the giver is in me, therefore I want to give. 
the danger is I could be giving everywhere like this. That's not acceptable to God. God has to speak to us regarding our giving. I have heard of your need. Either it has been shared with me, you might have even expressed a need, or the Holy Spirit might have, re have revealed the fact you have a need. Now, there is a danger because I am full of the grace of giving. I just want to meet your need. In fact, I want to meet every need of every person, but I can't do that because God hasn't given sufficient. And maybe I'm not supposed to be the one to meet your need. Maybe somebody else's. Now, through faith, again... God is pouring his love into my heart constantly. We want to be filled all the time with the love of God. Through faith then, love fills my heart. This love causes me to love you, just like God loves you. Oh, a bit strong. No, that's what it says in 1 John, in John 1 17, in John chapter 17, that the same love that God had for his son, Jesus prays that we might have that same love within us. Therefore, I love you with the love of God, the same love that God has for you. Therefore, it's impossible for me not to give you it. I know the need. If I have the means, I have to give it to you. I have to. I can't stop myself. It is impossible for me to do it because the grace of God doesn't permit me to do it. I always have the choice, but I have so much of him. The transformation has worked so well in my heart. I simply want to do this. So I lovingly and willing you give you what it is you require. <laughs> wow. What if the church was like that? Was the church ever like that? Was it never? Can you remember a passage of scripture would indicate the church might have been like that? Let me remind you of one. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, the first thing they did, they listened to what the truth was. Without the apostles' doctrine... We won't know anything. It isn't natural, all this stuff. It is supernatural. We have to listen to teaching to understand where, how these things work. So they first devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, then to the fellowship. There was something about loving each other that was really vital, and it, it came from God himself to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miracles, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Here it goes now. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. You see, the early church understood this grace and they were filled with this grace and they met together, it says, it goes on to say, every day they continued to meet together. That's fellowship. 
There wasn't, oh, I suppose I better go to church today. None of that stuff. It's like meeting together because the grace of God fills you with his love and you love every day. They continue to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together, 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 together. It's at least three or four times there. With glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of God and all the people. See, the grace caused them the grace of God caused them to make sure that no one was lacking. They saw the needs and this grace within their heart enabled them to give and to give and to give. Faith demands actions. Otherwise faith is dead. That's what James teaches. What do we do then? We give. We give. We give. There's the danger in the New Testament that not that you wouldn't give the tithe, you'd give too much. In fact, in this incident, Paul says to the Macedonians, ease up, boys. He says, like, you're in need. You're lacking yourself. Please get this money. Keep it, because I know a church in Corinth, they got stacks of money. We can get it off them and give to the poor in Jerusalem. Not you. And they said, no, you can't stop us. We want to give because God's grace so fills our heart that you can't stop us from giving. And we don't just give what we can afford to give, we give beyond what we're able to give. You don't have to teach on tithing and the law in the New Testament because what we have is a far better covenant with far richer promises, promises to us from God about what we can have. It's, it's, it's measly to, to go into the Old Testament and pressurise people to pay the tithe. Teach them the truth of the grace of God. You might have to wait a little bit longer, I understand that. Putting people under law, making them feel guilty, you sometimes can extract the money a bit quicker, but that's not what God wants to do. I, do I believe in the tithe? Well, I shared the other week, yes, Jesus comes after the order of Melchizedek and just as those Old Testament saints honoured Melchizedek, when we bring our whatever it is, sum of money to the church, we give it to the Lord, we're honouring Melchizedek, our high priest, as it were, but the tenth isn't mentioned ever. It's not mentioned here. If it was important and needed to be mentioned, Paul would have mentioned it in these two chapters if he mentioned it anywhere in the Bible, but he never. It's not mentioned because what God has a plan for is not that I'll just extract this tenth from you, but you will, you will so want to give and the grace of God will be flowing in your life. You'll have to say, stop, stop, stop. Isn't that the same with the gifts of the Spirit? Where Paul says, when, when the church is on fire, he's got to say, well, we've had enough tongues now. Stop, had enough prophecy now. No more, no more today. It, it is a calming down in the New Testament, not a cranking up to get it. Unfortunately, most of the church spends its time cranking up. But that's not ever what God intended. As the grace of God fills our lives. We give and we give before we receive. The carnal mind says, I can't afford to give. Faith says you can't afford not to give because giving is the key to receiving. God knew 
that if he gave Jesus, he would get us. If God never gave Jesus, he wouldn't have got one of us. So he takes the most precious thing that he has and he gives it to us so he can get us. Never knowing, never knowing really if any of us would really receive Jesus. He was prepared to nail him to a cross, not knowing in advance. Now, you say, Philip, God knows everything in advance. I understand that, but let me get away with this liberty just here. He nails him to the cross, not knowing if anyone would put their faith in him, because it was always a matter of choice. I mean, he could be overwhelming to us, but we still have that ability to choose because none of us are forced into the kingdom. But see, he gave before he got anything back. And that's the principle. Luke 6 and 38 says this, give. It says, give, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure will be pressed down, shaken together and running over. Will he be poured into your lap? For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I wish that wasn't there, but it is. So the meaner you are, the meaner God is in return. The more generous you are, the more generous that God is in return. As we give to God, God causes men to give back. And if this one won't do it, this one will. And if this one won't do it, this one will. See, he's not, he's not limited in that. And if none of them will do it, he'll do it himself. Because he's watching over his word to perform it. This is God's control over the whole situation. Whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return. I think we'd better stop there and take a few breaths to try and absorb that. And after the break, we'll take it a little bit further. Thank you. The key then to financial freedom is faith responding to God's grace. The key to financial freedom is faith responding to God's grace. Before the break, I quoted Luke 6 and 38. Give and it will be given to you, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Is the encouragement there for you to take the initiative? It appears that way. He says, the way you measure it out, that's the way it's going to come back. So if you don't measure it out generously, it won't come back generously. Do you then set the proportion in which you wish to receive by the proportion in which you give? Hmm. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying to receive, uh, sorry, you set the proportion in which you wish to receive by the proportion in which you give? Now, it can apply to many things. Uh, it could apply to, uh, to be kind to someone. To the measure you're kind, kindness will come back to you. To the measure you love, love will come back to you. Is he saying here, to the measure you invest financially, 
then blessing will come back to you. Let's press on and see if this is what he's driving at. You can begin to act in faith with your finances. If this is true, you can begin to act by giving and giving more. The motivation for giving is not to get more back. If you were to give more and got more back, it only enables you to give more. So that's not a bad thing, is it? You know, if you give to get more so you can heap stuff on yourself, that would be wrong. But to give to get more to give more, you go, well, that would be right. That's, that's a good thing. I want to give more, so I'll give more and God will give me more. As you live by God's grace of generosity within you, you will give and God will give it back to you. As you give, God will give it back. 2 Corinthians 8 and 5 says this, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. In our giving to God, in our financial giving to God, what is important, we first give ourselves to God. I would suggest you don't give any money to God unless you've first given yourself to God. Why? Why is that good counsel? If you haven't given yourself to God, then why would you give money to God? To win favour with him? You can't buy a relationship with God God wants a relationship with you. So giving him money when you don't really give yourself to him doesn't make sense, does it? Having given ourselves wholly unto God, then to give him our money is, is secondary. Was it John Wesley that said a man has two conversions? First his heart and then his wallet. And probably, you see, but the heart has to be converted first. We have to love God first and then we will be a little bit mean with this because we will loosen up as we love him more. Do you know God doesn't need your money? Oh, of course you do. You know that joke where they say, I take the offering and I throw it up and what God keeps, he keeps and what falls down to the ground is mine. You know that silly illustration. Well, of course God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. But as you give it, it's good for you because then he blesses you. It is for your benefit that you give. Guard yourself again that you don't end up giving to get to heap money on yourself. And the only way that we safeguard ourselves on that was to say, if I get more, I will just invest more. I won't spend it on myself. James warns us about that. Once you have given yourself to God, the giving of your money or whatever else you give, the scripture says this, it completes and establishes your righteousness. What does he mean by that? What you do with your money, it says, can establish you forever in God's righteousness. 
is money really that important to God? Oh, I think it is. Because he knows how important it is to us. That's why it's important to him. He knows the influence it has on our lives. And so he's saying, listen, if you can have my mind about this, it is to your benefit. 2 Corinthians 9 and 9 says, He scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Is he saying, if you give to the poor, then forever in the sight of God, he will see you as righteous? I believe he does say that. See how important your money is. That quote comes from uh, Psalm 112. I want to read this psalm to you. It's all about money. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Mm, we could do a whole series on the fear of the Lord. Uh, see, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, that has lost the concept of fear in the Lord, by and large. We don't understand what that means. We don't think, I mustn't do this because it doesn't meet God's approval, or it's not what it says in his word, therefore I must not go down that route. That surely is the fear of the Lord. Not, not fear like this, but a fear, a respectful fear that I should not just do things because I want to. The fear of him should hold me back. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. The man who fears the Lord will be rich and in this, in his riches, he will care for the poor and the needy. He won't think these riches are to bless me, these riches are to bless others. And because that's in his mind, his righteousness, he says, will endure forever. Even in darkest light, sorry, even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious, compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. You see, he's making the point again. If you're generous and you lend to the poor, your righteousness is established. The, sent, the idea that we are being generous with this thing called money establishes our righteousness before God. Because an unrighteous man doesn't lend to the poor. He doesn't meet the needs of the needy. He heaps it on himself. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honour. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. 
but the man who is generous, who gives, who lends, who flows out, his righteousness is established forever with the Lord. Giving is proof of our love to God. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 8, I want to test your love, he says, by comparing it with the earnestness of others. This is where he's comparing the Corinthian church with the Macedonian Christians. Shocking, isn't it? He said, I'm just going to see how much you give and compare it with how much they give. Therefore, he's, he's counting up, he's looking. Uh, it's where money, you know, we give secretly, don't we? We, get, we don't let the right hand see what the left hand's doing. We do it all secretly. We might do it secretly because we're ashamed of what we're giving. No, I didn't say that. Okay. But the idea is giving is not always a secret thing. It's a public thing here. What Barnabas gave was public. Everyone knew that Barnabas gave. His heart was right. It wasn't a secret matter. It was open. It was open. Paul has been speaking here, we say to the Corinthians, but the generosity of the Macedonians' Christians, he then says, I want to see if your love is sincere and I want to find out by measuring what you give with what the Macedonians' Christians give. I want to test your love, he says. Giving is also proof that God's love is in us. It says in 1 John 3, 16 to 20, this is how... We know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We ought to do to others as Jesus did for us. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue but with actions and in truth. If we say to someone, I love you, simply we say it, well, it's something, it's not nothing, it is something, but it's not much. He says, your love should not simply be in tongue and word, but I'm looking for the actions. Then he goes on to say, this then, love in action, is how we know that we belong to the truth. You see? It assures you of your salvation. Being generous, having the grace of God operating through your life, is a proof, an assurance, that God has done a work within you and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Mean people have to ask a question, is the love of God in my heart? John would say, no, it's not. Where are you in your standing with Christ? John says, our, gen our generosity will set our hearts at rest. It's more blessed, isn't it, to give than to receive? Does it give you a kick when you give? It's funny, isn't it? It can give you a kick when you receive as well. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to receive, but there's something added in giving. So we have two alternatives when it comes to loving. We either do it in words, or we do it in words and actions, or simply actions. 
In this passage that we read earlier, it talks about God loves a cheerful giver. God loves the world and all that he created. So you go, hmm, can he love some people more than he loves others? Is that particularly possible? I think he does love people in a special way. I think he loves all of his creation. He loves you, he loves me. But obviously, if we act in a certain way, we find favour with him. It says that he loves cheerful givers. The class of people that he loves then are people who are generous and happy in their generosity. It says in 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Certain people then find favour in God's eyes. Well, we know this. It says Mary found favour in the eyes of God. It says Noah found favour in the eyes of God. So some people find favour. Because of the way they are, God delights in them. Not saying he doesn't love all, he loves everything that he's made. But some find favour in his sight. The Greek word that's translated cheerful is the word from which we derive the English word, you probably know this, hilarious. He loves a hilarious giver. It overstates it a little bit, doesn't it, I think. Why should we give with hilarity? What would be the point of that? When we give with hilarity, it shows it is the Holy Spirit's grace within us. It isn't normal. Normally we count the cost. But you see, when we catch ourselves just giving with such hilarity, we go, oh, that must be the grace of God in me, because that doesn't come naturally to man. Giving in this way obviously calls God favour upon us. It says, a cheerful giver, God delights in that sort of person. And hilarious giving, it releases us from the slavery to money. We brought this up the other week. We can be slaves to the spirit of mammon, slaves to that spirit of fear that dominate us in our lives. Personally, I think we've lost something by giving by direct debit and standing orders. We give the same. We might even give more money in that way because we might end up going to church and forgetting to take our money or something. But there's something special about actually giving with our face and our hands, giving it to God, giving the money. Perhaps I'm just funny in the way that I think, and you think, oh, that's, that's irrelevant. I don't think so. We talk about it being an act of worship, don't we? Because if it goes through direct debit, what's that? You know, in fact, most of the money transactions today don't even go through us. We push a button here and we put a card down there and all our money's flying out usually, not in. Uh, it's just moving around. We don't actually pay for anything, physically pay, and I don't think we physically do this now. We've moved on enough. I get that. We can't turn back the clock and that's just the way that it is. But there's, yeah, something about that. I want to turn this... Uh, reading now to the ninth chapter 
where we're going to look at the fact that, um, well, chapter 8 runs into 9. If you've got your Bible, it just runs on. And then the next passage of chapter 9 starts at verse 6. It talks about sowing generously. And uh, Paul has an allegory here. Um, it's, it's a picture for us, an illustration, as it were, of a farmer. And he identifies how our giving, our generosity, with the life of a farmer, farmer's lives. He says this uh, in verses 6 to 15. Let me read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace, oh, that's that word again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply the increase of your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided to give. Now turn your attention to the farmer. Not that I've ever been a farmer or know too much about farmers. I lived in the suburbs of London for all of my life, but I can read the Bible just like you can. Four rules then for the farmer. He must reap, or he will reap, in the proportion to which he sows. That makes just sense to me. It's like mathematics. If I put one seed in, one, if I put ten seeds, it, it's, it's proportional. Which would support, if we give, we can expect more back. The more we give, the more we get back. This is supported here. He must choose a good soil to sow into. If the field is, is harsh and thistles and, and rocks and all sorts of things, he's not going to get a great harvest. So where we sow the money or he sows the seed is important. He must take proper uh, preparation of the soil and he must take proper care of the crop. 
So these things is what a farmer does to get a good harvest. It's not just, he knows, needs to know things as a farmer. The farmer, farmer's failure to receive will be because he has not applied some of these basic rules. But I'll apply these now to giving financially. When considering giving, ask the following questions. Is the ministry that I'm giving to anointed and fruitful? Is it bringing forth real fruit? The sort of question that the farmer asks, do I put it in this ground or this ground? It's good seed. Where do I put my money? In what ministry do I invest my money? If there's question marks about the ministry, why invest your money there? Invest it where you know. Is the ministry ethical in the way it appeals for money and the way it handles money? If you look at a ministry and you think, well, they're just wasting money. I'm not going to support this. I can't do this. A church that I've helped with, um, in their accounts, there was tens of thousands of pounds. My thought was at one stage to invest some of my uh, offerings into that. But when I saw how much money they had, my thought was, why would I do that? These people need to spend this money before more money can come into it. It doesn't make sense if they're just sitting on it. They'll just sit on more of my money. I might as well send it to someone who is struggling in ministry who could do well with that money. Is what the ministry is doing in line with scripture? Are the leaders prayerful, industrious and efficient? See, we have the responsibility. Your money, it's important what your money, the money you have and the money you want to invest. You, you, you mustn't squander it. The Bible talks about sloppiness, waste and extravagance and is not pleased with that. The prodigal son was one who squandered everything. He just wasted it. All of that wealth that his father had built up and established just threw it all away. On what? Just nothing, nothing. Four safeguards for your investment. Number one, be prayerful. Never give except after prayer. Be prayerful in what you give, how much you give. Ask God, allow God to speak to you in these situations. Avoid impulsive or emotional giving. Oh, I've been to meetings and thought, I'm not going to give everything, or I'm not going to give because I know what these people are like. And you know, when I walked out, I gave it. Ah, and then I kicked myself that I did it. And, and I, I was had, you see, you're swept along with the emotion of the whole thing, and they'll empty your pockets if you're not careful. So that's impulsive. Try not to do that. Maintain contact with whatever individual or organisation you're supporting. You should get feedback. What's going on? Even visit the ministry if you possibly can and speak to the people. And, and because some people just give and they keep giving after years, but nothing is being achieved. And always stay within the proportion of your faith. Don't give beyond what you really have the faith to give. Four results of why so in 2 Corinthians 9 and 10. Now, he, God, who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply the increase of your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 
As you sow, well, first he gives you the money to sow. And then as you carefully sow that, you will reap a harvest, more money will come, enabling you to enlarge your storehouse and from this not to spend just the money on yourself, but to invest more. And it seems the more that you invest, the more that comes back. That verse that I said to you, do you control how much? I do believe it's true. But you've got to be prepared to go all the way with God on this. That's a challenge. We know some businessmen who've done things like this. They've started to give and their vision is, I'll give a tenth of my business, but my vision is that I will give 90% to the Lord and at the end of the day, just keep 10%. And we've, we can read these stories, a lot of these stories. So there is no limit to investing and receiving and continue to invest and receive. We've just got to be bold enough to do it or daring enough to do it, daring enough to take God at his word and say, could this be true? Could this be true? It says he will increase what you have so you can sow more. He will enlarge, it says, the harvest of your righteousness. This means sowing generously is righteous. To en enlarge the harvest of your righteousness is to make you more righteous. Well, if he's saying if being generous is righteous and he wants to enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, he wants you to give more and more and more. And there is no limit to what he wants you to give. This passage, we read about God's level of abundance. Abundance means to overflow. Jesus said, didn't he, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Mm. That's not always true. Sometimes there's something in my heart and it doesn't come out of my mouth. Sometimes I don't let it. But if I get all excited, then what's in there will come out. But that's the principle. The abundance is an overflow, more than what is necessary. 2 Corinthians 9 and 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, of in all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul can't make it any bigger than that, can he? He says there is not a limit to this. How many times have you thought, I would like to support this or like to support that, I would like to give to this, but you've held yourself back? The promise here is that you will be able to do those things, obviously, by God's guidance. God's provision, then, is not just on the level of sufficiency, but if we live by faith, appropriate his grace, when the level of his provision is abundance, we have more than enough for all our needs and for ourselves. We must notice that the final purpose of abundance is every good work. It's not selfish indulgence. It is being able to do the work of God, to invest in that. The last little thought I have is that we have to be patient Bear in mind that there's usually an interval between when the farmer puts the seed in the ground and when the, the corn comes up. He doesn't put it in one day and look for a harvest the next. 
See, God knows you might have given something many years ago and maybe years and years later you're going to need a vast sum of money and God will allow that to come at that particular time. We don't know how God does this. He's in charge of that. He lets the fall, the seed, he says, he lets it fall into the ground. And what does the seed do? It dies in the ground. It has to die before it produces life. When it dies, the harvest will come. Galatians 6 and 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We must wait for God for his appointed harvest in our lives. You might have many testimonies of God's harvest in your lives. Going through difficult times, giving, giving when you thought it very difficult to give, and then thinking, and then God just coming and coming and meeting and meeting the need. Is there a limit to it? I tend to think not. I think we limit God in this one. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.